yesterday, after the session was over, that Deacon Gary McFarland said that uh, when he told some of the folks at St. Athanasius that they were going to come up here for the Eagle River Institute and told them the, who was speaking and that I was going to cover the book of Acts uh, in four sessions, I mean book of Romans in four sections, and Father Peter, of course, is just going to take a section out of the book of Acts. They were taking bets at... Uh, St. Athanasius as to how far I would get in the book of Romans. And I'm sorry to say, as best I could determine, the bets are we don't get too far. <laughs> but we are going to make as much uh, yardage as we can today. However, you will not believe me because I want you to look at one verse in chapter 1 again. <laughs> only one and only one word in that one verse. And it is verse 31. I'm, yes, verse 31. The trouble with translations is that each translator or group of translators have a way of trying to decide how do we translate this particular word. And the word is unloving in verse 31. And I knew there was something wrong as I was reading it yesterday, so I was double-checking it and... Uh, seeing what St. John Chrysostom had to say about his translation of that word. And he uses what the old King James says. They are unloving or without natural affection. Another, and it's in, also in the footnotes that this is pointed out, without natural affection. Now, uh, the only reason I refer to that is that I feel we're in... We've always had this problem in human race. Uh, there are new, no new sins, as I said yesterday. The devil simply takes the old sins, puts a new color of paint on them, makes them look better and good, and to the new generation, they think this is something great. Nobody's ever done this or discovered this pleasure or this particular activity. But the truth is they're the same old sins with just a new coat of paint, some of them with uh, different advertising and so forth. But this problem of unloving or without natural affection is, is the translation I'd like to use for that, is something we see around us all the time. Uh, our, our daughter and son-in-law, Deacon Gary and Melissa uh, Braun, have recently adopted, uh, not adopted, uh, taken in foster children and uh, as soon as they finished filling out all the paperwork and having the evaluation, uh, they finished that on a Monday, uh, and, and on Tuesday they got a call from the Human Services Department saying, we have these two children. One is a, the, the little boy is a two-month-old baby boy who has two broken legs or has had two broken legs and, and broken ribs from abuse. Can you imagine that? A little two-month-old baby. Already abused to that extent. You see, that is, that, that's people without natural affection. I mean, even pagans love their children. Unbelievers love their children. And sometimes even very wicked, sinful people love their children. But here is a case of someone without natural affection. And we have this in our society. and something we have to be on guard against. Then in chapter 2, I just want to 
mention certain verses that are key to the understanding of the judgment of God. Now, there is this uh, page in your Orthodox Study Bibles, page 341, that gives you the basis of God's judgment. But look at certain verses. Verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. God will judge according to truth, not according to what we think it ought to be or what is the fad of the day. Maybe certain fads can be very sinful and everybody thinks it's okay because everybody's doing it. The truth is, not everybody is doing it. Even in a very immoral society such as we have, not everybody's committing adultery, not everybody's going out living in fornication, not everybody's out living uh, in uh, the gay lifestyle. No, that's just not true. Not everybody's doing it, and just even if everybody was, if God said it's wrong, it's wrong. If the whole human race does it, we're going to find Paul saying that in just a little while. God says certain things, and it matters not if the whole human race says that's okay. It's not okay if God says it's not okay. Or it is okay if God says it's okay. That's what determines what right and wrong is. So God judges according to truth. And then, of course, in verse 8, we talked a little about this. He will render to each one according to his deeds. God is going to give, he's fair with everybody, and according to one's deeds, we will be judged. And he will not overlook any good deed we've done. I sort of think most of the things we're going to get rewarded for in heaven will be the things we've forgotten we ever did. <laughs> and uh, so we may, may ought to pray for holy forgetfulness with respect to our good deeds. Those things we thought we ought to get some praise for probably won't do it. <laughs> and God, God will uh, just say, uh-uh, you already got your reward for that. So, God will render to each one according to his deeds. And then that wonderful statement, you know, those of us who were known as the Grace Brothers, sort of like the Blues Brothers, you know, there were certain ones called the Grace Brothers back in the, the Grace Movement. And uh, we preached on grace so much, we didn't link grace sometimes with the fact that good deeds are very much part of our salvation. I'm sorry for those in the Reformation movement that want to try to so divorce works and, and uh, faith that there's almost no connection between them. I once heard a professor from Dallas Seminary speaking, and he was hammering so hard on righteousness being by faith alone, and then he went on to say, not even but it has no connection to the lordship of Christ because there was some emphasis on the lordship of Christ in those days. And I'm saying, whoa, wait a minute. If we're righteous without respect to the lordship of Christ, is it not Christ that we bow before? Is he not our Lord? Do we not is it not by faith in Christ as Lord and God and Savior and Redeemer? that we are saved. And so there are these ridiculous efforts sometimes to extract uh, the relationship uh, from of works to faith and, and separate them so far
from one another that they have no connection in a lot of evangelical uh, pop theology. But this passage is very clear that he will render to each according to his deeds. And if you study that passage, I won't take the time to go back through it again. And then verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. I mentioned that several times yesterday. God is fair, and he is not going to treat somebody, one person better than he does another. And sometimes he will take those things, as we pointed out, that seem to be so hard and so difficult and maybe even unfair in a sense. He turns those into some of the greatest blessings of our lives if we will let him. And then for his, uh, verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. The point there being that there are people without the law of God, without even the word of God, the written scriptures, but if they sin, and they do, without law, they will be judged without the law. They will be judged by the law of nature the law of God's self-revelation through conscience and nature, and they will perish because of their sins, not because of the, their ignorance, what they don't know. God does not judge us for what we don't know. He judges us for what we do know and do not live by or do not follow. And so, as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. And, of course, the, the Jews had the law of God, the, the Pentateuch, the Ten Commandments, uh, all of the, the, what they call the Torah, uh, which was a marvelous revelation and much great truth that helps, uh, helps us know something about the nature of God and, and the nature of evil. But the reality is... Uh, there are many, that, that also produces, produces judgment. Just as I said yesterday, to be called orthodox without living the faith of orthodoxy will be a judgment against us. It will be part of our condemnation before God. And then <clears throat> verse uh, 11, I'm sorry, verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And the law there not only is the Ten Commandments, but it becomes the law of God, even the New Testament law, the law of love. We don't just hear about love, we have to live love. We have to live the truth that God has given to us. And it is those who live by what they have received in terms of enlightenment from God that will be justified. And, and in a sense, uh, it, we might translate that uh, word law, or not translate it, but interpret it to mean enlightenment. The enlightenment from God. Whatever enlightenment from God we have received, we will be held accountable for it. You say, well, boy, it's better I don't come to a Bible study or to the Eagle River Institute or something. No, 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 we don't get off that way. <laughs> you see, if we have an opportunity and turn down the opportunity, we're still even going to be held accountable for that. God provide because in this we are compensated. You say, well, if I'm given enlightenment, I'm held more accountable. Yes, but you're also 
given tremendous opportunity for blessing to know the truth of God and to live the life of Christ. Uh, even those who may not know about Christ. I, know, I don't want to upset anybody here, but let me just share my own opinions, although I, I know there are others who hold this too. Uh, but I truly believe that there will be some people that will be saved, that will be in the kingdom of heaven for all eternity because they received the light they had. You heard me mention Father Daniel Biantoro yesterday. He talks about his grandfather who raised him. His mother and father divorced when he was just a young boy, and so his grandfather took him into his home to raise. And he lived with his grandfather, and when he was a teenage boy, Father Daniel's uh, schoolteacher witnessed to him and shared Christ with him. And the schoolteacher had been, had been a Muslim who had converted to Christ, and so he shared this with Father Daniel. And as a result, Father Daniel, though at first very angry that the schoolteacher had shared with him, he later began to investigate in the Quran itself and found all the verses that pertain to Christ. And one of them says in the Quran that Christ is the word of God. Well, the school teacher had pointed out to him in John chapter 1 that, that the scriptures call Christ the word of God, the Christian scriptures. And so he says, wait a minute. He says, so the Christian Bible teaches that Christ is the word of God. Quran teaches that the Bible is the word of God. Ah, I must investigate what does it mean for him to be the word of God. Now, I don't want to take the long time that he did to explain how he followed that through and reasoned it through. And then finally, after days of wrestling with this concept, finally concluded that the Christians are right. Christ is the word of God. And he understood then the relationship of the father to the son and so forth. And a great, wonderful train of thought that he developed there. And then he read everything in the Quran about the Theotokos, or about Mary, she's called, of course. And many wonderful things are said about her there. So he took the light he had, began to follow the witness that had been given to him, and came to a conclusion that the Christians were right about Christ, and he must therefore become a Christian. And he was baptized into Christ, and then he had to flee for his life because his uncle threatened to kill him. And for months was away from home, from his grandfather's home. And he kept praying for his grandfather, for his grandfather was already over 100 years old. And when he got back, finally the word was sent by members of the family to where Father Daniel had been hiding out, literally on another island uh, in the jungle, uh, away from his uh, uncle. He went back home when the word came that the uncle had openly declared he would not kill his nephew for becoming a Christian. And... When he got to his grandfather's home, he said, I explained to him in detail how I had become a Christian and what, what had happened and why. And he says, my aged grandfather, who though he was illiterate, he knew the Quran from memory just from all his life. And he was viewed as a holy man in the village they lived in. He says, my grandfather said, I have looked for this all my life. 
He said, this is what I've searched for. And Father Daniel had the privilege as a teenage boy of baptizing his own grandfather, and three months later he died. Now, you know, suppose Father Daniel had not left that island of Sumatra to come back to Java where his grandfather was. I cannot believe in my heart that his grandfather would have gone to hell. For if his heart searched, if he was trying to follow, he said, my grandfather was a righteous man all his life. He lived a righteous life. And he says, I, the, I loved my grandfather dearly for the righteous life that he lived. Somehow, Christ in his mercy, I think, would have accepted whatever that man knew about righteousness and truth and goodness. And through Christ, this man would have been saved. You see, you cannot be saved apart from Christ. You cannot be saved apart from what he has done for us at the cross and in the resurrection, in his whole life. You can't be saved apart from Christ. The scriptures are clear. He is the incarnate Son of God, and without God becoming incarnate, there is no hope of salvation for any of us, anyone. So, if someone like Father Daniel's grandfather is saved, let's say, without having known the fullness of the revelation of Christ, it would be because of what Christ did for him, even if he didn't know it was Christ who did it for him. So, forgive me if that sounds heretical to you, but it is something I hold deeply, and I have great hope that in his mercy, God will deal with people uh, whose hearts are soft and who have sought to live righteously with the, to the best they could with the knowledge they have been given. And only God can judge those things. You and I cannot judge them. Only God can judge those that are, that are going to perish. We cannot judge that. There may be people who, who are perishing that look to us like they're pretty good folks, but they may be living a double life. There may be something about their life that's totally unclean and impure and ungodly and unrighteous, and they're keeping it hidden from everybody. God knows those things. He judges according to truth. He judges without partiality. And it says, not for, uh, for as many as have sinned without law shall perish without the law. That is, in that case, without revelation or knowledge of God. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, Gentiles who are ignorant of God's revelation, by nature, and this I think of Father Daniel's grandfather when I read this verse, by nature do things, the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. You see, there is, within their own conscience, they have received the light God gave them, and so there is a revelation, of, there is a knowledge of God to some extent within themselves, who, sh who show the work of the law, written in their hearts. So here is, let's, here is this righteous man. And I'm, again, using an example only of a person I never knew personally, but whom Father Daniel has often talked to me about, his grandfather, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and 
between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my heart, my gospel. Paul says God will judge according to the secrets of men's hearts. And there will be those who were, in a sense were secretly righteous. Some of them more, far more righteous than maybe some of us who are openly righteous. Uh, a dear a man who is dear to me, uh, who I believe is definitely with the Lord, uh, start when he first came to my Bible classes years ago, about 1974, in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, and this was before we had just begun our studies in 73, you know, and uh, that ultimately led us, uh, a group of us, to orthodoxy. But this man came and he walked up to me and shook my hand after it was over, and he says, Hi, my name's Bill Hall. He says, I, I'm an agnostic. <laughs> but he says, I like, I've, I've been an admirer of St. Paul for many years, and he says, I really enjoyed what you were teaching tonight. I was teaching out of the book of Acts and on the life of Paul. And so from that time on, he never missed a Bible study and finally was converted to Christ. And I baptized him in, a, in Center Hill Lake at his favorite fishing spot. He called it the honey hole where he caught all these wonderful bass. And uh, later became a very, he followed us in our journey into orthodoxy was the man responsible for both of the buildings that we have there uh, at our church, and uh, a tremendous friend. But there were lots of times he didn't act very righteous <laughs> because he was one of those who helped a lot of the AA people get sober. He had been, he was had a man who uh, had, had severe problems with alcoholism and then had become sober himself. So he helped many, many men become sober, and women too, but uh, mainly the men in, in the Nashville area, and I know many of them who, we, we have our meetings together when I'm there, and he, his name always comes up, always comes up because of the impact he had on their lives. But sometimes he used some pretty salty language. And especially if he was talking to a fellow that he felt wasn't sincere, and he'd cuss them out and tell them, you need to go drink some more. You go drink till your wife has left you, and you've lost your home, and you haven't got a car and a job and anything to eat, and then come back and talk to me, he'd say. Then, then you'll get serious. <laughs> well, I, I, did, I never give that kind of advice. You know, only Bill could get away with that. But the point is, sometimes he seemed outwardly very unrighteous, but I knew his heart. In his heart, he, he would sometimes get teary-eyed over these men because he wanted them to get sober. He loved them, and he knew that somehow they had to be jarred into realizing the need for sobriety in their life. And, and his love for these people was so deep that he would go to any extent or any personal expense to try to help a man out who was having trouble with alcohol. Uh, and I've seen it happen over and over with him. So, you see, God knew his heart. I think there was a righteousness down in his heart that he sometimes masked with sort of this unrighteous exterior. And sometimes some of those who appear to be so righteous don't have a righteous heart. 
God sees what's there. He knows what's inside of us. Well, I, let me skip through these next verses. It's not something I hate to skip over, but verses 17 through 29 speaks more specifically to the Jew. The verses 1 through uh, 16 of chapter 2 speak of generally all Gentiles, uh, but in specific now he's speaking to the Jew. The reason this is such an important passage, I think today, in our circumstance, we can switch it to us. You know, we, we are the Jews, in a sense. We are those who have received enlightenment. We are those who have received the truth. And Paul is really coming down hard on that type of person. And I may I'm say we, I'm including myself here. He says, uh, I, I read most of that, but let me pick up with verse 25, uh, if we will. No, verse 24, I stopped with that yesterday. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As it is written, you see, that, that sometimes happens. Those of us who are religious folks and even pretty active in the church, sometimes our life is inconsistent in front of unbelievers. And so they blaspheme the name of God because of the conduct of religious people. I, I have known unbelievers throughout my lifetime. I used to be more aggressive in nailing them and talking to them about their soul and their salvation. And some of them would say to me, Preacher, don't talk to me. I know about those folks in your church. And the sad thing is sometimes I'd hang my head because I knew that some of those folks that were coming to church every Sunday were living a double life. And I knew they were. You know, and, and so they... In a sense, they were blaspheming the name of Christ because of what folks in the church were doing. And they, in a sense, were justified in doing so, although we, no one is justified in judging someone else. Uh, but they, nevertheless, this was their feeling. They felt alienated from Christ and the church because of what they'd seen in all of the Christians. And... Uh, so he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. For the Jew, circumcision was the proper route to fall. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now I want to switch words here. Let's put the word baptism in the place of circumcision. Or, and let's put the word Orthodox in the place of Jew, you see. For, sir, for baptism is indeed profitable if you keep God's revelation, the law being the truth given to us in our faith. If we keep the truth of orthodoxy. You are, but if you are a breaker of the law, of that revelation, if you disregard that revelation given to you in the holy orthodox faith, your baptism has become unbaptism. Do you see what, how this applies to us? Uh, and, and lest you think I'm doing something, uh, some kind of violence to the Scripture, I want you to turn, if you have an Orthodox study Bible, to page 465. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. 
And I, I want to pick up with verse 9, though I'm headed for verse 12. <laughs> for in him that is in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is Colossians 2, 9. You must understand this. This is the deity of Christ. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. That's the amazing thing about the incarnation. It's the mystery of the incarnation. How could the fullness of the Godhead dwell in a human body? There's no way to explain it. It's beyond human rationale. All right? And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In Christ, we are full and complete. We, we, and there's, there's a wealth that could be said about that. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hand. This is a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism so that our baptism is our spiritual circumcision that takes place in our baptism in which you were also, also were raised with him through faith in the working of Christ who raised him from the dead. And so it is in our baptism that we are spiritually cut off from the sins of the flesh, the old life, the past life. We've been buried with him and raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Now, of course, this, all this language applies to adult baptism, but the church came to teach that also infants could receive the same benefit and in a sense, it's even more beneficial because if they're raised in the tenderness of their faith and that faith is not shattered oftentimes by the misdeeds of those Christian adults around them, uh, if that doesn't happen, then they can be raised up to be a St. Athanasius. If you read the life of St. Athanasius when he was a young boy, he was instructing these pagan boys and had fully instructed them and was out baptizing them when the bishop of Alexandria was looking at Alexander was his name, was looking out there, and here's this boy baptizing his kids there, uh, and he says, whoa, what's happening here? This boy is blaspheming, and he calls the boys in and begins to reprimand Athanasius for what he was doing, and turns out Athanasius had done it all in sincerity. He said, what were you boys doing out there? He says, I was baptizing these. These are pagan boys. And I, well, how can you do that? Uh, you're, you're scandalizing the church. And, the, and he says, no, your eminence. And he explained to him he'd been catechizing them and he'd been teaching them. And so he began, the bishop began to question the boys and found out how much. Uh, you're, you're scandalizing the church. And the, and he says, no, your eminence. And he explained to him he'd been catechizing them and he'd been teaching them. And so he began, the bishop began to question the boys and found out how much they knew and how much they understood and how their hearts were soft and tender and they wanted to follow Christ. And he, so all he did was he just blessed them and chrismated them and they went right on into the church and he wrote a letter to the family of uh, Athanasius' family, says, I want him to come and stay in my home. I want to instruct this young man. And Athanasius became the great hero of the First Ecumenical Council in the year 325. 
and he'd been brought up in the faith. His family had raised him in such love for Christ from his tender young years that he never knew a time of rebellion against God as far as we know. There's none of that time when so many young people go out and sort of, you know, sow their wild oats, as they say, and all these kinds of things. I don't think that's necessary. I think a child who is raised in the faith and there is sincerity in the family and a good example set and love, I tell you, those children have a lot better chance of being righteous all their lives uh, than those that aren't raised that way. So we in the church believe it's important to baptize an infant and bring them up in the faith and give them communion from the day they are baptized. <laughs> and so uh, their chances are great if they're brought up in a loving, righteous atmosphere. So baptism is, is the equivalent of a spiritual circumcision that cuts us off from the world, from the flesh, from the sins of the world, and brings us into union with Christ. Uh, then in verse 26, this reaffirms what I said to you earlier. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous, righteous requirements of the law, will not un, his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision if an unbaptized man keeps the righteous requirements of the the revelation that god gives him that law being there his insight his understanding again i would use father daniel's grandfather uh, as far as i know as an example of this uh, here is a man who lived by what knowledge he had and he lived a humble loving Righteous life, as far as, as I say, as Father Daniel sees his grandfather as having been a very righteous man, even though he was raised in the Islamic uh, faith, there was not this radicalism, this craziness that's so prevalent in, in Islam today. Uh, and it's always been latently there, as Father Daniel points out. He says, our problem is not just with the radical Muslims. He says it's there in the Quran, and, and it's an underlying stream that's there throughout all of Islam. But there are those who ignore that and who, who have a righteous life. They're, they're a Muslim. And so uh, I, I was told about uh, this, this last... Uh, Labor Day, Father Peter arranged for me to go and speak to uh, the Egyptian, the Coptics uh, uh, for their evangelism conference, which Father Peter had established for them. And it was a wonderful experience. And one of the priests told me about a lady in Australia, and he said, I'm going to go this summer. I assume he's down there uh, and interview this lady. He said, She was raised, raised Muslim, somehow found her way to Australia, and just out of the humility of her heart, she, she little by little came to Christ. Someone gave her a Bible. She began to read the Bible and this kind of thing. She, for quite a while, was not baptized. She didn't even know who to go to to get baptized. But she was so baptized in the love of God that she started sharing what she knew and what she had discovered in the scriptures and so forth with her friends. 
And he said, finally, she found her way to some Coptic Christians who instructed her, and she was baptized, but she already, in a sense, knew Christ before she knew Christ, before she knew who it was that she knew had spoken to her. And she talked about this man that had appeared to her on the streets, and I believe it was Sydney, Australia, and she was lost one day. And this man just came up and gently said, what is your problem? Where are you? And, and explained to her where to go and how to get there, and then he just suddenly disappeared. And she didn't know who he was or where he came from or where he went to. And two or three other times after that, she had the same encounter with this same person who kept just suddenly appearing when she needed the help she needed. And later she came to believe it was either Christ or an angel sent by Christ that appeared to her. And this woman, he said, had, and the, the priest said to me, she has 728 cases, as it's a term he used, of people that she has been sharing with and instructing in the faith. These are people that she is leading to Christ, many of whom had already have been baptized. This, this one woman, you know, Christ worked in her heart before she even knew who it was that was working in her heart. So we have hope that there are a lot of people like this, we hope, in the world. Let's pray that there will be. God knows we need that kind of hope, don't we, and that kind of help in our desperate world. So, therefore, if an uncircumcised, let's say unbaptized man, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his unbaptism be counted as baptism? That's what Paul is saying. And will not the physically unbaptized, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and baptism are a transgressor of the law? of that which we have been taught and instructed. Now, I realize I'm taking some liberties of interpretation here, but I believe this is not an, I don't, I don't think I'm wrong in interpreting it this way. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, let me change that and say he is not an orthodox who is one outwardly, nor is baptism that which is outward in the flesh, but he is an orthodox who is one inwardly, and baptism is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. Now, having said that, I believe in baptism outwardly. <laughs> All of you, my fellow priests, know if I can possibly get somebody in the water, I want to. Uh, as my, some of my greatest joy is baptizing people. I think I, there's nothing I enjoy doing more than baptizing people. And uh, even before we came, became Orthodox, one of the highlights of my life after a, a youth retreat up in Mansfield, Ohio, in, a, uh, in the dead of winter, in the midst of a heavy snowstorm, I baptized 26 uh, young people at midnight one night in a, in a pond. We had to break the ice to get into it. Now, it had thought enough that the ice was not thick. And, and uh, so I, as we walked into the water, 
the ice was cracked and moving aside. Believe me, you never forget those experiences. <laughs> but I'm saying to you, I love to baptize folks and have all my life. But I do believe that there is, Paul is saying that there must be an inner baptism, a circumcision of the heart that cuts us away from the world and cuts us away from the things of, that, that Satan would put in our life and makes us love Christ with all our heart and he is supreme in our life. And, we, and, and unless we come to that point where we love him with our whole heart, even if we don't know who it is we're loving, as in the case of this woman in, in Australia, she knew she loved God. And when she discovered it was Christ that she loved and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, she immediately received the instruction, this priest said. And this lady is now bringing many to Christ and into baptism. But she already had Christ, in a sense, before that happened. So uh, let's, let's pray that many will be like this, and that all we do is just go out and bring in the harvest that God has already prepared. That's what we need to pray for. But we need to be out there bringing in the harvest. <laughs> Father, Father Mark and I talked about that today as we drove. Now, if you reason this way, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Well, what advantage then has of the Orthodox, or what profit is there in baptism? You see, that, that's what the Jews were saying to Paul. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision if you teach these things, Paul? They were coming down hard on him. Much in every way, he says, there is a great advantage to being a Jew, and there is a great advantage to being an Orthodox. And what is it? Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. In the Old Testament, the Jews were committed, the, the truth, the teachings of God were committed to the Jews. I, you know, it took us 14 years of, of meandering everywhere to finally make it into Orthodoxy. That was a term, Father, uh, Father James Bernstein used yesterday, says we meandered our way into orthodoxy, and it's true. Uh, and uh, it was not an easy thing. It was not an easy journey. And sometimes there were a lot of people thought we lost, lost our gourd. You know, I mean, we lost our marbles. We, something was wrong. And there were times when I thought we had lost our marbles. Uh, that we were kind of crazy doing what we were doing, and we were, from a human point of view. But, you know, ultimately, we realized that what we were seeking had great profit. It was indeed the pearl of great price, and we could not sacrifice. Uh, we could not make too great a sacrifice. I'll put it that way, in order to find this, because we found ultimately the pearl of great price, we feel, in the Orthodox faith. But I want to tell you something, if we ever become callous about that and careless about it and treat it like the Jews treated the law, the Jews got to the point where they didn't 
love the Gentiles at all, even though there were many prophecies in Isaiah and others telling the Jews that they were to bring the truth that God gave to the Gentiles. And Paul quotes many of those in his writings. It was the plan of God that the Jews opened the door of truth to the Gentiles. And they failed, and so the Gentiles themselves, to them were given the truth, the oracles of God, and the teachings of truth. And therefore, we now have the same responsibilities the Jews had. And the same judgment will befall us if we are not faithful to share what we have been given. And so I'm not, I do not think I'm taking liberties with the scripture when I say what advantage then has is there to being orthodox? And what is the profit of our baptism? And then Paul says, much in every way. There is great profit and much to be had, for to us has been committed the oracles of God. He says, but what if some did not believe? He's speaking of his Jewish brethren there. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. If the whole world says, no, this is not right, orthodoxy is not right, Christ is not God incarnate, we say, no, you are the liar. God is the one who tells the truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. We will never impugn the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God. We can never deny his righteousness and his truthfulness. Let us be the one who are the liars and the unfaithful. Will our unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our righteousness then demonstrates the, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Now when we say inflicts wrath there and when Paul says that, I don't believe that God is malicious at all. We talked about that privately yesterday. God is not a God of malice. And that statement that was in the notes of, of the Orthodox Study Bible is extremely important on the wrath of God. But that wrath is real when we choose to deny the truth and deny the revelation that God gives us. God is not unjust. Paul says, I speak as a man by even suggesting that possibility. Certainly not, for then how would God judge the whole world? You see, God has the privilege of being the sole judge of man's actions. Now, I'm going to, there is a set of arguments that Paul is addressing uniquely to his Jewish brethren here that I'm going to skip on over. Although in doing this, I hope privately you will read these next verses, uh, especially 9 through 18, for his, his point is made in verse 9. What then are we, that is, we Jews, better than they, Gentiles? Not at all, for we've previously charged both Jews and Greeks, and think Gentile there, 
that they are all under sin. You see, what his goal is to point out that all men have sinned, all need salvation, all need Christ. That's the goal that Paul has in mind. And then he sets forth a, a, a medley of Old Testament quotes that are powerful. When you read them, you feel like crawling under a rock because you say, wow, is it this bad? Yes, it's this bad. And he, he, he shows how mankind, as mankind now, both Jew and Gentile together, have sinned against God and rebelled against God. And uh, he, he's quoting a variety of quotes out of the Psalms. And if you have the Orthodox Study Bible, you can look up those quotes in the Old Testament. Uh, you'll have to have a full, complete Old Testament, with, although several of them come out of the Psalms. Most of them come out of the Psalms. But now, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and in this case, of course, the, Jew were un, were, the Jews were specifically under the Mosaic law, but the Gentiles are under the law of conscience and the uh, revelation of God through creation. In a sense, it's the law of revelation that he's speaking of when he uses the word law here. And so we know that whatever the law, that is the revelation of God, says, it says to those who are under the law or that revelation that every mouth may be stopped, both Jew and Gentile, and all the world may become guilty before God. We are guilty. You know, even atheists, I, I've had some long debates with students at Ohio State that were devout atheists. And... Uh, you know, they just go on and on about all the fallacies of faith, having faith and believing in God and so forth. And then when you get right down to it, I start asking, let me ask you, do you believe there's anything wrong with anything? I mean, do you believe that murder's wrong? Oh, yeah, yeah, murder's wrong. Well, why do you believe murder's wrong? Oh, it's, it's just, well, it's because of society. We don't want to destroy society or something. And when you keep pressing them into the corner, after a while, get them into a little box there, they finally have to confess they, they just believe some things just because. They, they believe in right and wrong. Well, where do you get your sense of what is right and wrong? If there's no God, there's no right, and there's no wrong, and there's no consequence to our deeds. Let's just eat, drink, and have a party because tomorrow we die. Why do anything right? Why try to save the what? Why try to save the ecology if there's no God, if there's no consequence, if there's no sin? And so you see, we you have to you have to be able to face up to the fact that we stand before God and we are guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law. No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, that was what the Old Testament law was for, was to teach us what sin is all about. Now, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Ah, we're getting to a big turning point. When Paul says, but 
now. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, God has a way of making men and women righteous apart from even the Old Testament law, which was the, up to that point, up to the coming of Christ, the best we had. It was the most truth that man had ever been given was in the Old, old Covenant. The Pentateuch, the, the Law and the Prophets, the writings of Old Testament Scripture. You will not find any writings, religious writings, if you just compare them, lay them side by side, you will not find any that compare with the depth of moral teaching that you find in the, in the scriptures. And so it says the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, the benefit is the same for all because the need is the same for all. God has provided a by faith righteousness for everybody because everybody falls short of the glory of God. We have sinned and we fall short, so we have the same need. Each of us has the same need. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, that is a marvelous, marvelous statement. And truly, we could spend several days talking about that passage. One of these times, if I live and stay in good health, I'll come back up when we're having something, you know, right in the dead of winter, and you haven't got anything to do, and we'll study Romans for days. How about that? We'll, we'll, uh, and, and just take these verses apart. <laughs> but, you know, th these three verses are so full, uh, no, four verses are so full of truth. And we need to understand them. I, I certainly cannot take the time to go into them, but you can read the notes that are in the Orthodox Study Bible. This righteousness of God. Now, how righteous is God? Think about it. How righteous is God? It's got, the only answer is he's perfectly righteous. Is there any unrighteousness in God? No, no, no. Uh, if, we, if we accuse God of being unrighteous, that's a serious thing. I want to clue you what that is. It's blasphemy. And blasphemy is serious. Read what the Bible says about blasphemy. And about the last thing you want to do is blaspheme God. <laughs> you might want to go commit almost any other sin you can think of except that one. But I'd suggest not trying any of them. Uh, we, we're tempted to all of them. Uh, there's not any of these sins we aren't tempted to at one time or another. But the one you better be most careful about is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's pretty serious things in there in the Bible. Jesus had some strong things to say about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So we don't want to, we, we don't want to be in that position of blaspheming God. And so uh, he is perfectly righteous. 
he is not unrighteous, and he makes it possible for us to be righteous by faith. Or, for, for, as I said, all of us need that because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And to be justified means that we are made righteous. Now, it is true that we can use the term we are declared righteous, declared to be righteous, uh, which the Protestant reformers made a huge big deal out of. But the best statement you'll ever find in a short paragraph is in the Orthodox Study Bible on page 345 under, uh, uh, the, under the category of three, chapter 3, verse 26 there. He says, Christ is faithful in his propitiation. You see, he is the one in verse 25, it says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Uh, the word propitiation speaks of the mercy seat, and Christ is the source of our mercy. He is the means of God's mercy upon sinful people like us, like we. And we are sinful people. And Christ provides, uh, St. John Chrysostom says, it makes us immediately righteous when we come by faith, but he makes us righteous. He does declare us righteous, but he makes us righteous in Christ. And uh, I want to pick up with that, and we'll move on through chapter 4 and into chapter 5 at the next session. Let's take a few minutes break, get something to drink, whatever you have to do, use the potty, anything.